Good morning. Welcome to Munger Place. My name is Andrew. If you're just joining us, I'm glad you're here. Today is Palm Sunday. 2,000 years ago on this day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds cheered. Five days later, on what we call Good Friday, the same crowds that had been cheering began to jeer. They showed crucify him. And Jesus hung on a cross and died. Why? What happened? What happened between the Sunday morning and the Friday evening? I think that's an important question because I think Jesus is the most important person and the most influential person who's ever lived. I don't say that from a religious point of view. I think that is a historical fact. There is nobody who's had more influence about than Jesus. In fact, one of the peculiar things about Jesus is that his influence grows the longer it's been since the time of his death. Have you ever thought of that? And the reason I bring that up is we're blessed this morning to have all different sorts of people here in our church, people who believe, who don't, people who our skeptics, those who have complete faith, people who are doubting or carrying something heavy this morning. And whoever you are, are this morning, you're going to have to come to grips with this question of what happened that last week of Jesus' life? Who is he? What, what makes him different? In fact, I don't think you can say you're a reasonable, thoughtful person unless you've really dug into that question. One of the really interesting things about Jesus is how much space in his biographies is devoted to the last week of his life. There are four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. We call them the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are unique. They are a unique form of literature. They are like a religious biography, special to the Bible. And in Matthew's Gospel, for example, which we'll read about in a second, one-fourth of his entire Gospel is devoted to the very last week of Jesus' life. Did you know that? And the other Gospels followed the same way. So the reason Jesus is influential, and again, that's not up for debate. He's the most influential person who's ever lived, whether you believe the Christian claims about him or not. The reason he's influential has got to have something to do with what happened that last week of his life. And that's what I want to dig in and begin to look at today, and we'll finish it next week. 2,000 years ago, he entered Jerusalem in a certain way. This is how Matthew describes it. This is Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And here Matthew quotes from the Old Testament prophet of Zechariah. Verse five, quote, Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey, end quote. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. May God has richest blessings to the reading and hearing of the word today. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you would take my words and speak through them. That you would take our thoughts and think through them. And that you would take our hearts, Lord, as a result and set them on fire for you and for your world. This is what we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For us to understand why that first Sunday was so significant, we're going to have to know a little bit of the background 
Here's a map of Jerusalem in the first century at the time of Jesus. Matthew tells us that Jesus entered from the east, from the Mount of Olives. Today you can see the Mount of Olives, it still exists. It's a high hill about 3,000 feet that overlooks the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount where the remains of the Temple are was the Kidron Valley. To enter Jerusalem that day, Jesus had to have come from the Mount of Olives down into the valley and then rose up into one of the main entrances into Jerusalem. What's so interesting about this Palm Sunday is that Jesus, throughout his entire public ministry, always tried to keep a low profile. In fact, if you've ever read the Gospels, one of the things that's really strange that will stick out at you is that whenever Jesus does something amazing, and he often does, he heals the lame, feeds the hungry, he gives these electrifying speeches in a way that no one has ever heard. Whenever he does anything amazing and the crowd wants to gather around him and proclaim him as the Messiah, he always says, shh, don't tell anybody. In fact, often when it's really uh, busy on one side of the Sea of Galilee, he'll take a boat across to the other side and vice versa because he doesn't want the crowds to know too much about him or follow him around. Which is why it's all the more surprising on the last Sunday of his life, what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus entered in such a provocative and inflammatory way into the city of Jerusalem. You're going to have to understand that the tension in Jerusalem was very high that, that first Palm Sunday. 20-something years ago, in the summer of 1989, there was the riots and the uprising in Tiananmen Square in China. And there's this famous image you've seen of the one young man standing in front of the tanks. If there was ever a picture of courage, I think this is it. I was able to go online this morning and Google that image very quickly, and I can learn all that I want to know about Tiananmen Square. But if I'm living today in mainland China... It's not going to be permitted for me to see. The internet will be filtered. In fact, young people today growing up in China don't know a whole lot or even know what Tiananmen Square is. They think it's some sort of rumor that's been manufactured. Now, a few years ago in the summer of, 19, of 2009, that is the 20th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square riots, I read reports of how the tension in China, particularly in Beijing, was very high. In fact, I know one guy who was an American who was in Tiananmen Square and he pulled out his camera and it was confiscated from him. No dissent, no possibility of riots. The government needs to tamp down on any possibility of an uprising or unrest. It's a similar situation that Jesus finds himself in that first Palm Sunday. And this is because Jerusalem at the time of Jesus was not a free city as part of God's people. It was overruled and, by, and held under occupation by the Romans. And Jesus enters on Palm Sunday during the time of Passover. Now, Passover is a Jewish holiday. Uh, faithful Jews celebrate it today. And Passover was the holiday that commemorated how God's people had one time been slaves in Egypt, but God had heard their cry and brought them out into freedom. If you want to know about the story of the Exodus, you probably should turn on cable television late at night this week, maybe next Saturday night. Leading up to Easter, the cable television shows love to show the biblical epic movies, and you can see the movie The Ten Commandments, and whatever they show in the movie is exactly what happened. You should just know that. <laughs> but Passover was a holiday that the Jews reminded themselves about. They, they came together and ate certain foods and prayed certain prayers and sang certain songs, and it was a holiday about freedom because they knew that one time they had been slaves and they cried out to God and he heard their cry. And this made the Romans a bit nervous. But made the soldiers strip their swords a little tighter and the spies pay a little bit more attention. And I wonder what was going through the thoughts 
of the Roman soldiers that day as they looked from the balconies of the houses in Jerusalem down to the place where the crowds were gathering around this strange man from Nazareth and Galilee. Jerusalem, that first Palm Sunday, was, it was a bomb ready to go off. All it needed was a match to be struck. So again, I'm just interested. Jesus, throughout the whole rest of his ministry, keeps a very low profile. Why on this particular Sunday did he come in in such an inflammatory and provocative way? We think, scholars think, that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience because Matthew is very concerned with showing how the actions of Jesus fit with the prophecies that had come in what we call the Old Testament. So Matthew very quickly picked up on the significance of this first Palm Sunday. He quotes from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet and he talked about the coming Messiah. Now you may not know this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not Jesus Christ. In fact, in the ancient world, people didn't really have last names the way we do. Either you were named after like a personal characteristic, and so there's a great story in the book of Judges about Ehud, the left-handed judge. Or you were named after who your father was. In the New Testament, we read about James, the son of Zebedee. Or maybe you were identified from where you are from. We have Simon of Cyrene, one place in the scriptures, or often it's Jesus of Nazareth, which is how the crowds refer to him here. Christ was a title, and Christ is the Greek way of saying the Hebrew word Messiah. It means the anointed one. The Messiah is the hero who's prophesied to come and free God's people from any sort of slavery and dominion. The Messiah is the one who's going to come and make everything right, who would bring in justice and righteousness, and there would be peace when he reigned. There were other Messiahs at the time of Jesus. And what's interesting about all of them is they rose up a rebellion for a few weeks or months or even a shorter time than that and then they were put to death there was a man named Judas the Galilean right around the time of the birth of Jesus he raised an uprising and he was uprising he was killed and his sons were crucified a little bit after the time of Jesus there was a, a guy who claimed to be the Messiah his name was Thutis and Thutis had a small army which was routed by the Romans and he was beheaded and his head was stuck on a pike and shown around the city to say don't mess with us because the people were always looking for a Messiah. They hated the Romans and they hated the, the Jewish leadership that collaborated with their hated occupiers. And they suffered and they paid an incredible uh, amount of taxes to the Roman Empire to finance Rome's army and dominion and destruction. And they knew the story of the scriptures and they knew the story of the Exodus and they knew that God had said, one day I'm going to make it right, I'm going to send a Messiah. And they knew the story that Zechariah had seen, how Zechariah had said, from the Mount of Olives, the Messiah will come, but humble, riding on a donkey. And the rumors had already spread about Jesus. In fact, there's a point in the Gospels where even Herod himself hears about Jesus and he wonders, is this, who is this? Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist, risen from the dead? Because you can't do the things that Jesus did in the way he did it and not gain a degree of notoriety. So the rumors had spread, and then, on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now, he has it obviously elaborately planned out. You notice in this Matthew's version of the story, he sends two disciples ahead to some prearranged meeting place, it seems like, to get a, a donkey. Jesus is the master storyteller. There's nobody who tells stories better than Jesus. He tells those great parables, classics of world literature, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the good Samaritan. 
But here we have on Palm Sunday a living parable. Every gesture that happens matters. It's no accident that Jesus gets a small, humble donkey to come into Jerusalem that day. And the contrast is clear. When Pontius Pilate, when Alexander the Great, when other the great men of history come into a city, they come in their full armor on a great, mighty war horse saying, don't mess with me because I'll kill you. But the prophecy was when the Messiah came, he'd come in a different way. Zechariah says, humble, riding on a donkey. So this man from Galilee, this mysterious figure, Jesus of Nazareth, of whom everyone had heard, comes into Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday. And as I said, as, in as provocative and inflammatory a way as possible. And the people don't miss it. In our culture, when like, there's something patriotic that happens, we go, USA, USA, right? I wish we could come up with a better chant, but that's all we can come up with. It's easy, I guess. And it goes along with beeping your horn. In those days, a similar chant was Hosanna. It means save us, Lord. But by the time of Jesus' day, it was more just kind of a chant that said, go Israel. It's a patriotic, it's, it's, a, it's a nationalistic chant. And that's what the people chanted. And the palm branches are also significant. At the time of Jesus, the most recent hero of Jewish history was a man named Judas Maccabeus of the Maccabees. And at this time, this is about 160 B.C., Jerusalem was again under foreign occupation. And Judas led an uprising and freed Jerusalem and restored worship in the temple. In fact, Jews today celebrate an aspect of God's actions under Judas Maccabeus in what we call Hanukkah. And it came to be that when Judas Maccabeus came into the city, people cut down palm branches as a symbol of who he was. And so the palm branch became a sign of Jewish nationalism. So Jesus, this humble man from Galilee, comes in on a donkey, significant, humbly. The people shout out, God save us, and they lay down palm branches. It's very clear what they expect to happen. As I've said, Jerusalem is on edge. And only would take one word from Jesus and the whole city would rise up. So the same guy that they're cheering for on Sunday, they're jeering at on Friday morning. If you've ever read the story, this is what happens. Pilate has Jesus. He takes him to the crowd. He's already been beaten. He's already bloody. He's already been humiliated. And Pilate says, what would you have me do with this man? And that same crowd had, that had yelled, he's the Messiah, says, crucify him, crucify him. Why? What happened? Why the difference from Sunday morning to Friday? What the people wanted more than anything was freedom. But they didn't want it in the way that God was going to give it. And what ends up happening is that the very thing that people desire more than anything, they act in a way absolutely contrary to their desires. They want one thing, and they act another way. This is, frankly, probably almost the story of my life, particularly when it comes to uh, my experience with the ladies. When I was, you shouldn't have laughed at that phrase. <laughs> when I graduated from college, I was in my first ever wedding. I'd maybe been to my family's weddings, but never really been in a wedding. And my friend picked me as the best man, which I thought was an appropriate title. 
And this was the time before I met my wife, and so the whole point of being the best man in a wedding is to impress the other uh, women in the wedding. That's the point, I'll just be honest with you. So I was working my charm the whole weekend, and I was funny, and I was cool. And it comes to the rehearsal dinner. I'm sitting across the table from this woman that I wanted to impress. And often when guys want to impress girls, they like drive a fast car or do backflips or do something cool. Well, I, I, I knew a lot about women at that age in my life. And I decided what I was going to do was going to clean my plate uh, at the rehearsal dinner. And that would impress uh, this girl about how good my manners were. So we're at the dinner and I dig into my steak and she's impressed. She can see that I'm somebody of clear breeding and had earned my title best man. I eat my mashed potatoes, I even eat my vegetables and there's one green springy branchy thing left and I thought if I eat that, that will show her that I am the man and all resistance is futile. So I took this sprig of thing and I shoved it in my mouth and as I was doing that, she said, you know that's rosemary, right? And I, I had this thing, I still do it a little bit, but at that time I did it a lot. I always acted like I knew everything. You know anybody like that? And I said, yes, I know it's rosemary. I don't know anything about rosemary. I, I'd never heard of it in my life. And I thought it was edible. Now, listen, you guys are good cooks, I'm sure, and maybe you can make rosemary taste good and you grind it up and it adds a special herbal flavor. Let me tell you something. A branch of rosemary is disgusting, okay? It tastes like soap. In fact, to this day, I don't really like rosemary. And even if it didn't taste like soap, you can't eat a branch anyway. It's impossible. But I'd already told her I knew what I was doing, and I was trying to be a cool guy and, and deserving of my title, best man. So I decided to stick it in the corner of my mouth like a piece of chewing tobacco, and it sat there for the rest of the evening. Unfortunately, I was unable to talk and kind of continue to impress her so that that night fizzled. In fact, I think what really was the death knell was then at the end of the evening when I had this thing in my mouth the whole night, wanting, not wanting to spit it out in front of her, I went over to the edge of the railing overlooking the lake and spit out like a half-chewed up piece of branch. Needless to say, that didn't go anywhere, that relationship. Here's the point. I set out to impress her, to show her what a cool guy I was. <laughs> but my actions led to a different result. The crowd wanted freedom more than anything. And yet they mistook the signs of God's Messiah and the way that it would work. They wanted what God can give them on their, own, on their own terms, not in the way that God actually brought it. They wanted one thing and they acted in a way that brought the other. What about you? Last night I was involved in another wedding, and this time I was the officiant. And I stood right here on this stage in front of this couple and we went through the vows together. And one of the most mysterious things in the world is that nobody sets out on their wedding day to have their marriage fall apart. And yet that happens to a lot of people. Nobody sets out to say, I want you to be my enemy in several years. But that happens to lots of people. I don't know any parents who want to raise their children to have struggle adapting and living in the world, taking responsibility, earning their own money, making wise choices, and yet a lot of us struggle as parents with how to do that. If you're here today and, and you're struggling financially and you think, if I could just have a little bit more money, all my problems would be solved, I can tell you that I know people who have plenty of money and yet their problems aren't solved. Money doesn't solve all problems. and doesn't bring ultimately what we want. 
Everybody I know wants happiness, wants freedom, wants peace, and yet often we do the very things that don't bring it to us. I've never met anybody who says, I want to live my life in the slavery of addiction. And yet we know lots of people who find themselves in that state. Because just like the crowd on Palm Sunday, you and I are people who think we know what we want, but we go about the wrong way to get it. We think we want what God can give us, but we don't want it in the terms that God wants to give it to us. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and die to yourself. The crowd wanted a Messiah who was going to come to kill. They had no use for a Messiah who was coming to be killed. The crowd wanted a Messiah that would said blessings on God's people and curses on all the Gentiles. And this Messiah came. He said, I desire to bless both the Jews and the Gentiles. I wondered this morning if you are in a place where you, you want the things that only God can give. And Jesus is very clear about what he wants to bring. He wants to give you abundant life. He wants to give you peace that's beyond understanding. He says, if you have trouble, have no fear because I have overcome the world. In me, there's no trouble. Many of us don't want to worry. He says, in me, you don't have to worry. Just seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added to you. Many of us today want the things that God can give us, but we don't want it in the way that's going to come to us. And often God seems to work in ways that are beyond our understanding that are different. In fact, as I love to quote to you, God delights in taking the small things of the world to shame the strong, the weak to shame the wise. And the crowd saw the humble man Jesus of Nazareth coming on the donkey, and they thought, this is the beginning of the end for the Romans. And in fact, it was the beginning of the end for that man, the Messiah. The reason the crowd went from jeering, cheering on Sunday to jeering on Friday is because they couldn't see that the very thing they needed was what Jesus, in fact, came to give. And so the cheers then turned into curses and jeers on Friday were a part along with the collusion of the Jewish authorities and the violence of the Romans was a part in what it took to crucify the anointed, the Messiah. The crowd wanted freedom and they ended up crucifying the only one who could ever really bring true freedom. But in the gracious purposes of God, mysterious beyond our understanding, God was even able to use the darkest moment in human history when all turned their backs on the Messiah. God was even able to use that as the beginning of his greatest victory, which would be revealed three days later. Come back next Sunday to see how it turns out. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.